Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And coming up on today's programme, the people's car pioneer Volkswagen is switching lanes. And it's changing the goal of the company since its inception from growth to profit. And in future, it's going to be focusing on high end consumers. I'll be joined by Joe Miller from the Financial Times to find out why it's happening now and what it means for affordable cars in the future. And as we all know, COVID-19 has upended our working world. But what really lies ahead for employees and employers? We'll look at both sides with two leading industry experts and examine the mega trends ahead for both workers and businesses. And finally, we didn't start the fire sale, but if there's a billion dollars on the table, we'll take it. It's Billy Joel's back catalogue set to make music history. We'll talk to Travis M. Andrews from the Washington Post about why music royalty are all suddenly selling their work. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, Volkswagen was once very much considered the people's car and now it's shifting gears to target high-end customers. I'm joined now from Frankfurt by Joe Miller of the Financial Times to discuss the recent changes that were announced by the car manufacturing giant. Joe, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Thanks for having me. Now, Joe, Volkswagen literally translates to the people's car and it's taken a massive U-turn in its business model. Can you tell us exactly what it's proposing to do? Yes. Um, so, as you say, Volkswagen, you know, is most known in the popular imagination for essentially inventing the personal car. Uh, Henry Ford obviously uh, came out with a Model T in, in America. But when you look at Europe, it was Volkswagen that really popularized the idea of every household being able to to afford a, a vehicle. And that has been the focus of the company for decades in its post-war uh, incarnation. Uh, it was essentially focused on selling as many cars as it could uh, every year, on producing cheaper and cheaper cars so that to, so as to attract uh, more customers who could now afford individual mobility. And over the last two years, that has begun to change quite profoundly. And that's partially due, due to the pandemic, because in the aftermath of the pandemic, there was a shortage of semiconductors. There still is a shortage of semiconductors. And Volkswagen, as well as the industry as a whole, was uh, very constrained in how many cars it could produce. And all of a sudden, it realized that it was making more money by selling higher end models, which it was prioritizing because it could only produce certain amount of cars uh, and that really it would be a more profitable company if it just focused on the higher end and so the company has adopted this new strategy which is we're not going to target selling more and more cars every year and we're not going to roll out more and more models every year in fact we're going to slim them down they're going to cut about 60 percent of their models and really focus on the more profitable higher end part of the market. Um, Joe, talk to me about the um, brands that sit underneath the Volkswagen umbrella. And is there an average price point within that group? It's a very good question because um, VW is really an eclectic mix of a whole load of different brands that it acquired over different points in its in its history. And they don't really all fit together mm. if you look at them on a sheet. So you have Audi and Porsche, obviously, 
you know, luxury brands. You have VW itself, which is sort of middle of the road. Uh, then you have cheaper brands like Skoda, uh, which is a Czech automaker. You have Seat in uh, in in Spain, uh, and a collection um, of supercar companies, for example, Lamborghini. Bentley, uh, so it's a bit of a mishmash. It's very hard to say what you know your your average um, cost is, but we can say that you know some of the most popular models that VW has ever produced, say you know the Golf or the Polo or the Passat, these are not luxury cars. These are supposed to be family cars. They're supposed to be affordable um, to to most people on you know middle class incomes, uh, and that was very much the focus for for many many years. And everything else was kind of a nice add on, you know, to be uh, in all of these sort of fancy markets and to roll out supercars and the rest. Uh, but that's very much going to change. And, you know, for example, there was a Volkswagen app uh, uh, up with an exclamation mark as mm. one of their uh, more recent models. It was a so-called city car, uh, sub 20,000 euro car. They're not going to renew that model. Um, they are not going to be in that segment anymore. Um, they're not really interested in, in marketing those kind of cars anymore. So essentially by default they found out that by producing higher end cars and less of them they were making more profits is that likely to affect other car manufacturers is this a trend do you think joe it very much is actually um some of the others even the ones who uh, are considered luxury car makers to begin with your mercedes and your bmws um, they are adopting a similar strategy now you may think well they didn't really make affordable cars to begin with but in the last few years their strategy was also to try and bring people into the brand at a lower price point so mercedes had for example the a-class a small little bubble of a car and the smart car um, which belonged to mercedes and you know bmw had its one series and if you look at their uh, sales figures now and you look at their strategy and you look at their model plans for the next few years they don't want to be in those segments anymore they don't really want to, to be selling uh, cars below a certain price point so it's happening everywhere there are some exceptions for example Stellantis which is uh, the company that was made out of the merger of uh, Fiat Chrysler and and um, and Peugeot uh, you know that's a company that's very much focused on affordable cars and I don't really see that much of a shift there but they will be in the minority and the vast majority of the industry is going to abandon these segments and they we must say you know they will probably uh, be quite um, uh, quite quite significant consequences for people on the lower end of the income spectrum who for years you know, have been able to afford individual mobility. And it's very possible, given the inflation that we're seeing and the pressures on on people's uh, household budgets, uh, that people could be priced out for the mm. first time in many decades from owning an individual car. Yeah, Joe, uh, so this could be the reversal of a trend that we've seen for many, many decades towards car ownership. It could pivot back to becoming a luxury item again, do you think? Absolutely. And I mean, I think we're already seeing that. And, you know, this is, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense, worsened by the shift to electric. And you know, no one is arguing against the shift to electric. It's, it's necessary for, uh, in terms of the environment. But electric cars are much, much more expensive still than combustion engine cars. And when you look at, for example, Volkswagen, which is, you know, investing more than any other uh, traditional car maker into electric vehicles, uh, well, it's ID3, which was its sort of 
flagship uh, electric car uh, that uh, it brought out last mm. year is it costs more than 30,000 euros and it will only start thinking about making a a 20,000 euro electric car around 2025 and we'll see whether that actually happens now because raw material costs have gone up so you know they're they're not starting this transition to electric nor are many other car makers from the bottom they're starting with the most expensive models and going downwards and that really will exacerbate exacerbate this uh, this crunch on on low-income households and obviously affect their their uh EV strategy as well. We might come to that in a second. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're talking to Joe Miller of the Financial Times about Volkswagen and their change of business model. Now, we've talked about how this would affect the company and its investors, but how is it going to affect consumers? So those who uh, claim to care about consumers within the industry, um, they would uh, you know, listen to what we've just been talking about and say, you've got nothing to really worry about because the whole ownership model uh, for uh, cars is going to change in that um, we're all going to have some form of subscription. There's going to be a lot more car sharing. There are going to be robo taxis um, that, you know, there will be uh, all sorts of um, schemes by which you can, you know, sign up and use a car whenever you get into the city, for example. Um, and those those schemes will proliferate and they will be cheaper than car ownership uh, in, in the form that we're used to it today. And now that's possibly true, but I, I suppose the counter argument would be that it will take a few years until these schemes really um, start to be common enough and widespread enough for people to be able to use them instead of owning a car. And the fear from consumer groups and, and others who are, you know, are concerned about low income families is that there will be a gap of five, you know, six, seven years when it will be quite difficult to get affordable cars and even some of these new schemes, it will be quite difficult for people who don't necessarily have a good credit rating um, or are struggling, you know, to, to set up direct debits or, you know, or can't get the apps because they don't have the latest smartphone. You know, there will be a gap in that gap. Uh, people who used to be able to afford individual mobility might be priced out of it. So you mentioned earlier, Joe, the issue of semiconductors is the thing that really started this problem and look started the, the car manufacturers looking down the road of um, where they would best use those semiconductors. Is there any um, resolution in sight to that supply issue? You know, it's interesting for the last um, or it feels like two years I've been covering this semiconductor shortage. Mm. And every time you go and speak to uh, one of the uh, car bosses, they tell you, oh, it's, you know, six months away from being resolved. Um, they said that at the beginning, they said that six months later, and it always seems to be six months away from, from being resolved. Uh, and what's interesting in the last few weeks and months is that you're getting far more pessimistic predictions from the industry saying that it certainly won't be resolved this year, that it will continue continue into next year and no one really wants to put an end date um, on this shortage and the reason why is because there is a sort of structural undersupply because the chips that the car industry needs these aren't cutting edge chips they're basically um, legacy semiconductors so-called legacy semiconductors that do basic functions like you know roll the window up and down and make the keys work you know the remote control keys and and things like that and um, there are very few companies in the world that are willing to invest 
billions into more capacity for making these chips because you know they're not the most modern technology and they will eventually uh, be phased out and so you've got this surge in demand and no one really willing to spend a lot on increasing supply which is why this is persisting and why it looks like it will persist for well at least a couple of years and how is all of this going to affect volkswagen's ev strategy do they have any issues with battery supply it's the big open question, really. Um, you, it depends on who you ask as to whether there are um, enough raw materials, for example, around the world to uh, produce enough batteries to fulfill the ambitions of car makers like Volkswagen. Um, a spanner has been thrown into the works by um, the rising raw material prices um, recently. And of course, the war in Ukraine has exacerbated that. So we've seen the price of lithium and nickel. And, you know, these are... Um, uh, ingredients, crucial ingredients in, in battery making, we've seen them go up, you know, tenfold in some instances, sometimes higher than that. Um, so it's all up in the air as to what that means, as to whether they will normalize and to whether uh, electric vehicles can uh, be made economical within the next few years. If you take a longer term view, uh, yes, there should be enough. Uh, Volkswagen, for example, is building six so-called gigafactories, battery factories in, in Europe. Um, many others are building their own battery facilities and you've seen a real ramp up uh, in, in recent months, not just in the company's plans, but in pledges from governments around the EU support and subsidies for, for battery production. Um, so it's really kind of anyone's guess as to how quickly um, this transformation will be able to happen and how much the crunch in raw materials will hold it up. But I don't think there's anyone who has a, a terribly pessimistic long-term view. It's just a question of how fast or how slow this transition can take place. You mentioned, Joe, the, the war in Ukraine there and it's affecting many different things in many different ways. One of the developments we saw this week was that Russia withdrew the their gas supply to Poland and, and Belarus. Um, I know you're based in Germany. Um, how has this gone down in in germany do they is there a sense over there that their their supply could really be cut to now there is a great fear that um the supply of gas to, to germany could be cut um to a greater or lesser extent it affects all of um german industry and the real fear here is not really necessarily that uh, that Russia will cut off um, the gas because uh, in some ways it, Russia needs to sell gas to, to Germany. It's one of its biggest customers. It has um, very few other options, at least in the short term, if it wants to generate revenues from, from its gas reserves. Uh, but there is a feeling that Berlin might come under enough political pressure where it is forced to unilaterally uh, impose a uh, an embargo on imported Russian gas. Uh, and that would, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, you know, send Germany into a fairly deep recession. It wouldn't hurt the car industry as much as the car industry is more reliant on electricity than on gas, but it would have an enormous effect on, for example, uh, the chemicals industry, which runs these enormous sites that are powered by gas, including steam crackers that uh, separate um, particles and they are powered by gas and if you shut them off uh, they are very very expensive to shut off and to, to turn on again but also they are making chemicals that are a part of almost you know everything that um, goes out into the economy you know plastics and parts and and um, you know uh, equipment for healthcare and and pharmaceuticals and all sorts of things mm -hmm. so no one really knows what the knock-on effects could be 
um, if, for example, the likes of you know BASF, the biggest chemicals company in the world, suddenly had to stall its operations. There's certainly a lot of eyes in Ireland um, on Germany watching what happens there because obviously such a huge economy and with such an influence in the European economy, we're very interested in the news and the developments there on a completely unrelated uh, subject, but linked to our next item, which we're going to be talking about, which is the world of work. Joe, can I ask you, you're working for the Financial Times, uh, an Irish journalist working over there. How has your world of work changed over the course of the pandemic? Um, Well, it's interesting. There's far fewer in-person meetings even now that the you know pandemic is waning a little bit um and that's been the main difficulty Mm -hmm. really because as a journalist you kind of use uh, off-record meetings to establish trust with people you know and it's very hard to do that over a zoom call Uh, and that's really been the biggest impact for me it doesn't really matter where i'm working from whether i'm in the office or at home but what does matter is meeting people you know not over the phone and not not over email uh, not over video conference, but but over a drink in a bar, and then six months later, you know, they become incredibly helpful for for a story you're writing, and I really hope that comes back. But yeah. there is no sign of it coming back in the same way, unfortunately. That's very interesting because it is a a journalist equivalent of networking. You can't actually do it and have those side conversations and develop those relationships o- over Zoom and and via technology. It's just not you possible. Really can't. You really okay. Can't. Well, Joe, look, we're very grateful for you for for making the connection today and taking some time to to speak with us. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about the developments in Germany. But for now, we'll leave it there. That's Joe Miller from the Financial Times. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we'll be discussing the megatrends that lie ahead for employers and their staff as we continue to deal with the complex legacy of COVID-19 in the world of work. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, as we all know, the, the COVID-19 impact is still very present in the workplace. Uh, we saw this week the World Health Organization warned that Ireland may be facing another wave of the virus in the weeks ahead. And that's while we're still dealing with the legacy of complexity for society and how we all work. So to explore this very complicated environment that we now find ourselves in and to look ahead perhaps at what employees and employers can do to stay ahead of the pack, I'm joined now by Jackie Fagan, who's president of the Ireland chapter of the Project Management Institute, and Barry Winkless, who is chief strategy officer at the CPL Group and Future of Work Institute. Thank you both for joining us today at News Talk. Thank Great you, to be here. Thank you. Firstly, Jackie, can I start with you? Because um, I'd like to frame this discussion uh, as, as a part of the broader work landscape. I think that there's four phases here. There's the pre-pandemic phase where we're all used to working in that contract employer, employee environment. There's the pandemic phase where we were just trying everything we could to survive and get through our workload. There's this phase, which is trying to find the hybrid model that works. And there's phase four, which is what does the future of work look like? So I know that in PMI, you've done done some research and conducted a survey recently. Can you tell us what that survey is about and who you included in it? Yes, certainly. Um, So the PMI Megatrends report is the result of research and evaluation of trends and industry data from around the world. And it highlights the feedback and insights from project professionals, senior executives, directors and thought leaders across a range of industries. In the PMI, we service about 2.9 million professionals with over 650,000 members. Wow, that's a big survey. (laughs) So the data was really a true global exercise. 
and it highlighted the impact of these mega trends, as we're calling them, as we step into the new new norm and the future challenges to our society. And can you, so t- Jackie, can you take us yeah. through what those trends are showing? What are the, the key areas that people are concerned about? Yeah, there, there's sexism and um, it's the first one is digital. They're not in any particular order. It's digital disruption. So um, it's just the new era of new technology. There's so much new technology coming on and that brings us with itself a whole load of challenges in terms of data breaches and, and privacy and how far do you go with artificial intel- intelligence? Then the other one, which would be all familiar with, is climate crisis and uh, COP26. So we're talking about uh, sustainability, the effects of global warming. So that's going to have a huge impact on work-life balance and work in general. The demographic shift, um, we have a declining aging population. Everyone knows about that. And um, also because of the COVID, people are actually looking at their work-life balance. So the questions of the four-day week, you know, the hybrid working model, that's all coming into it. There's economic shifts, so the whole supply chain, rethinking the globalization as a result of when borders closed, that had challenges to it for organizations. And uh, there's the labor shortage, like here in Ireland, we have under five percent um uh that are uh not working so that's mm-hmm. a really low level and at some stage supply is going to outweigh demand and then we have the civil civic and equality movement so you have the diversity groups uh, like social protests on the street and they all will play a part in it yeah so that's the uh, Jack- stop at the six of them <laughs> jackie yeah we might delve into some of those in greater detail as, as we move on but i wanted to bring barry in here barry um some of those topics that uh, Jackie mentioned there we'd be very familiar with, um, like the issue of demographics and labour shortages, which is really your area of expertise. And I saw a survey by CPL recently where you said that you're advertising four times as many roles mm. this as this time last year. Where are you seeing the big movements in terms of labour? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that's really important. I think, one, we all have to recognise that all organisations at this moment in time are struggling to fill roles so that's, you know, we need to kind of call that one out. So about 80% of hiring managers that we're speaking to are kind of calling out difficulties there. Um, so we're seeing a lot of roles, as you would imagine, in the technology space, but equally across other areas like in life sciences, med tech, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, that's that's going to continue for the next period of time. And I do think we've got a bit of a perfect storm, mm. if you want to call it that. You know, as you mentioned, we have come in post-COVID, so we hadn't have access to the globalised workforce that we needed. You know, we have digitisation. Mm. And then the third thing I think is really interesting for me is what I would call the power of one. Uh, so, you know, really the, the what I would call the power is shifting to us as individuals uh, and our ability to control our own careers. So mm. I think, you know, and, and uh, I would definitely kind of, you know, link up with a number of things that Jackie was saying. And it's a great report. Uh, you know, we're definitely seeing that at an organisation on an individual level as well. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of broadly what we're seeing at this moment in time. Yeah, that power of one concept is interesting because I did a bit of anecdotal research uh, ahead of these interviews to speak to business mm. rather than focusing on the individual employees side of mm. things. And I spoke to different size businesses and I spoke to business associations Um and I'm getting a sense from them that there's a there's a there's a bit of frustration there that maybe the balance of power has shifted too far in the direction of employees. And they seem to be concerned with many things like the legislation that's being brought mm. in and feel that maybe 
in the longer term, this could be something that is not working in favour of creating jobs, but will actually cost jobs. What mm. do you say about that? <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, I think actually when we talk about the future of work, actually the biggest thing we need to think about is that conflict between the I versus we. Mm. Uh, and actually, I would say that, you know, probably not a diplomatic thing to say, but I would say a number of organisations were caught out by the pandemic in terms of them as a human centred, you know, organisation that really values individuals. So they were exposed, if you yeah, like. I, I yeah, do, I do believe that. Now, there are many great organisations as well. And, and thankfully, we work with a number of those with the Future of Work Institute. But I, I did think I do think it kind of highlighted a gap between what organisations were and what they need to become mm. uh, for people to really want to work for those organisations. I fundamentally believe if you look at some of the research we've done, uh, you know, we're thinking by about 2035, 25 to 30 percent of us are going to work on our own. So we're not going to be working for organisations anymore. We're going to be working with organisations. If I think about my own circle of friends, you know, five, five friends, three of those are working on their own. One is kind of an entrepreneur and then one works in an organisation. So it's changing everything. Yeah, it has completely mm. shifted that notion when we went to school that you would go and get a career and you'd stay in that career for life. You know, now you might have many different roles and change many different times. So that's a that's a good thing. One thing I want to ask you about was the importance of wages in decision making for um, staff in a labour shortage situation. Mm. What other things are they looking at and how important is money now? Brilliant questions. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this the long way around, if that's okay, but it will be a short answer. I think one of the things organisations really are switching on to now, particularly we're working with a number of companies in this space, it's to really understand what value are they giving to their employees? And it's often beyond wages. So look, obviously we're going to see, you know, wages increasing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think, um, you know, companies need to realise they've actually quite a broad canvas to paint on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so things like really focusing in on employee engagement, you know, really focusing in on what I would call non-traditional benefits and perks within the business, you know, really focusing in on being a good business, you know, having a direction and involving people in the direction of where you're trying to go. These are little things, regardless of the size of organisation, that I think companies are now focusing on. And if they're not, uh, they need to. Um, you have to bear in mind that it's a, it's a competitive space out there, but it's a competitive space for the organisation or for the individual. Yeah. So you, they really need to kind of up their game in terms of defining and designing what value they're going to bring to those people over a period of time. So if you think about, you know, some of the younger generations, you know, they're putting things like purposeful work, you know, companies that actually are going to make a difference ahead of things like salary. Flexibility is now number two across all of the various sectors that we look at and we work with. Uh, so that has become really important as well. So I would say to kind of organisations out there, guys, you have a much broader canvas. Mm. Get your act together and kind of really design this stuff purposely. And the CSO research that was out earlier this week showed that people who were offered that hybrid model with flexibility were yeah. certainly the happiest ones in the work environment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Jackie Fagan and Barry Winkless about the future of work. Jackie, can I bring you back in here for a moment just to pick up on some of the points that Barry made? There's clearly a much bigger issue uh, than just wages, as we might have traditionally seen in, in making people's decision to move around different professions. Um, just taking that into consideration and the six challenges that you mentioned earlier on, how can companies sort of meet these challenges head on? What, what advice would you give them? So I definitely agree with Barry uh, about some of the points he mentioned, um, particularly for companies to be people-centric and sort of the, 
the non-wage benefits and looking to have the flexibility with the employer in mind. Um, we mentioned earlier about uh, embracing the hybrid model. They can absolutely get creative about finding and retaining talent. Also, harnessing the power of all change makers. Um, there's a lot of technology out there, low-code, no-code platforms, which would leverage existing employees to have a more efficient and cost-effective way of working. Um, also, preserving the knowledge from departing workforce and taking into account in their whole organization the whole sustainability uh, topic so that when they, if they are producing products or producing um, an output, whatever deliverable it is, that they produce that with the life, the end of life uh, issue in mind for whatever that product is. So they're just a few small ones that they can actually, and that's something that they can do very easily from day one. Jackie, one of the things um, that you mentioned uh, in the Megatrends report is civil, civic and equality movements. Can you just take us uh, down that road a little bit further and explain what exactly that is? Yeah, so... um, Despite the restrictions and everything, and now everything started lifting up, social protests are still happening. So you only have to look at recently the solidarity marches for Ukraine. So the research uh, in the megatrends found that um, it is expected that these we continue to see these processes as rising inequalities intensifies, resulting from the economic trends starting to materialise. That will unveil uh, social unrest. Um, there's probably no need for me to go into the um, male, female uh, equality movement, but I did a, a webinar there recently on International Women's Day where we found that uh, in Ireland only one in eight CEOs are female. So we've still a long way to go. So, um, yes, that we expect those movements and they will then in turn play a part back into the organisation as how the organisation will try and respond to that and try and to diminish the, the protests. Barry, as, as Jackie pointed out there, in terms of equality, even gender equality, mm-hmm. there's still a long way to go. But yes. despite all these challenges, the pandemic has been a great leveller, hasn't it been for um, for people, for boardrooms, for offices? Do you see a, a situation where the working environment has actually become a conduit for great change? That's another great question. I think I think fundamentally, I have a fundamental belief that large organisations, medium organisations, small organisations need to be almost a lighthouse mm. for best practice in society. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, 150 years ago, you companies like Bourneville and Cadbury's, you know, they were like building houses for their workers, you know, in time of, of slavery. Mm-hmm. So they were acting as a lighthouse for the future. And I do think that, you know, as leaders, we have an opportunity to make society better, not just make our own organisation better. Our own company, uh, we have a female CEO. We have 65% of our employees um, are female and we are massively um, indebted, I would say, to to that mix, you know, because I think there is a a certain type of culture that's been created as a result of that. Um, So I do think, you know, as leaders, we need to really understand our impact in society mm-hmm. and our impact of our organisations on society. And it very much links to what Jackie said around not just thinking circularly around products, but also around people mm-hmm. um, and really understanding that, you know, we're part of this bigger thing now. Uh, we're both good and bad, you know. Um, so I do think organisations are putting their hands up now and saying, well, actually, 
we do need to kind of lead at the forefront around things like sustainability, things like citizenship, you know, things like inclusivity, but also really coming be the best uh, yeah. and highlight the best. And it is about, you know, recognising that work and our lives are so you know, integrated and, and meshed together that you can hardly separate one from the other anymore. But uh, guys, listen, getting ahead of the curve and, and winning that battle for talent is going to obviously require a lot more effort and energy and thinking than salary increases. Um, if you want to learn more about the survey we've been talking about, uh, the Mega Trends report will be revealed at the Irish Project Management Institute conference on the 18th of May in Croke Park. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Jackie Fagan, president of the Ireland chapter of the Project Management Institute and Barry Winkless, who's head of strategy at the CPL Group. Jackie, Barry, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, thank, thank you, Jackie. Thanks very much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. After the break, piano man or businessman, can Binny Joel break all industry records with the sale of his prolific back catalogue? You welcome back to Taking Stock. Now, have a listen to this. England's got a new queen, Oceano. And that, of course, was Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Now, last year, Billy Joel did an interview with Howard Stern and he ruled out selling his back catalogue unless there was an offer of at least a billion dollars on the table. And we all had a little bit of a chuckle at the absurdity of the number. But now, in what could be compared to a kicking the tyres on a Lamborghini, sources say that Joel's representatives are maybe testing the waters on a figure. We're joined now by journalist Travis M. Andrews of The Washington Post. Travis, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Before we look at the back catalogue sales and everything that entails, can you just explain to me and to our listeners how exactly the royalties for an artist like Billy Joel actually work? Absolutely. So primarily, and I should say this is sort of a blanket statement, everyone's deals are different, but generally the way it works is that there's two sets of distinct copyrights. There's one for the composition of a song, which is basically the arrangement of the music and the lyrics. It's it's not the tangible thing. It's if you were to sit down and come up with a melody and write out some, some lyrics for it, that is the composition. And then there's another copyright for the actual recording of that song. So if you were then to record that song on a tape recorder and you have you know an actual recording, that, which is known as the master, becomes uh, the second copyright. And in general, and this is where things get a little confusing and it changes depending on who the artist is, in general, the artist and the songwriter himself retains the copyright to the composition, to the, the actual song and the lyrics, and the record label controls the copyright of the master, of the actual recording. Now, oftentimes, in cases like Billy Joel, and we've seen with Springsteen and Dylan and some others, as I'm sure we'll discuss, that artist over time somehow either buys back their tangible recordings, the masters. Um, in the case of Taylor Swift, she's re-recording all her music so that she has a second set of masters that she owns. Um, but in general, like I said, there's there's two copyrights, and that's what makes licensing of music, selling of music, it's what makes it all complicated because then there are two parties involved, whoever owns the composition and whoever owns the sound recording. Uh, I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. So in recent years, we've seen um, a plethora of very famous stars with amazing back catalogues uh, selling 
their rights. Um, what exactly are they selling when they're making these deals? What are they giving up? For the most part, the the ones that we're seeing in the news, the Bruce Springsteen who sold for about five hundred fifty million, Paul Simon uh, about two hundred fifty million, uh, David Bowie estate for about two fifty million. What they they are artists uh, or estates in Bowie's case uh, who over time managed to get both sets of rights. So they owned both the recordings and the composition. And so what they are selling is essentially any say in how that music is used in any way moving forward. Um, Previously, in the past, if, say, Bob Dylan owned the recording of Like a Rolling Stone, but his record label, or sorry, owned the composition, but the record label owned the recording, and Toyota came along and wanted to do a commercial, they would need to get permission from both parties, Mm -hmm. from both the label and from Dylan. They would pay royalties to both parties. They pay to both copyrights. Um, So it's lucrative to have both. And what these artists were doing when they, they got both was they had complete control over their music. And now by selling, they have no control. Um, none whatsoever, and they, they will never get it back unless they buy those rights back. And why is it happening now? I, I know I read uh, about um, a tax incentive uh, that Bush actually introduced initially where this type of music is considered a capital asset. Um, what else is influencing these type of sales? There's a few different factors. As you mentioned, as of now, they're considered capital gains in America, which means they're taxed at a much lower rate. Um, And there is talk, now whether this will actually happen, it hasn't yet, that President Biden's administration will reverse that law and then essentially tax these sales at a, a higher rate. Whether or not that's going to happen, we'll see. But on the other hand, um, maybe even more importantly, About 10 years ago, um, some private equity firms began realizing that music was this sort of untapped asset. Music is used for so many things and more and more in today's world. Um, You know, back in the day, it was movies and TV and and radio, but now we have things like Peloton or exercise apps or TikTok, social media. Um, So music's being licensed all over the place and about 10 years ago, these firms started seeing this and saying, hey, we should start investing in this space, buying these rights so that we can you know, essentially turn a profit later on. And we just reached a point where valuations of catalogs have just risen higher and higher as music's being used for more things. We have the capital gains tax uh, issue going on. And we've reached a point where a lot of experts say this is the highest music will maybe ever be valued. And so this is the moment where the bubble may burst And so it's Mm. a good time to sell. You'll make the most money you can possibly make. And Travis, is the changing nature of how music is distributed, is that affecting artists' attitudes to ownership? Absolutely. You know, um, it's interesting, too, because when I originally wrote about the selling of catalogs, one of the things that came up was that streaming services make music less lucrative for artists. So maybe you have a better chance uh, of making money if you just sell the the whole thing and not have to deal with the complications of streaming and the the meager payouts. One wrinkle that happened was this whole Spotify Joe Rogan story that happened a few Mm. months ago where um, Neil Young pulled his catalog from Spotify because he wasn't happy about podcaster Joe Rogan and some of the comments he made about the coronavirus vaccines. And he said he didn't want his music to be on there. But to do that, Neil Young does not own his own music. So he had to go to his label and ask them to pull 
his music, which worked for Neil Young. But if, say, Ruth Springsteen or Bob Dylan wanted to do that now to people who have sold their catalogs, they can't. They have no control. And uh, we haven't seen if that's going to factor into artist decisions moving forward, that ability to pull their music from places they don't want it associated with. Um, but it, it certainly is an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, so they've given up the discretion, really, and any ownership on their own creativity. It's very difficult to to drag these deals back. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one, one important thing, too, in noting all this is the artists that we're talking about who have sold are all in the later stages of mm. life. And, and one thing that I think has come up a lot is, like we said, these music rights are so complicated. The decisions to pull your music from this service or that service or what to do with it is complicated. And a lot of these artists might be setting up their families and just saying it's much easier to leave a lump sum money to their children than it is to leave this complicated and ever-changing set of rights uh, to them, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so they, they may as well cash in. Folks, if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Travis M. Andrews from the Washington Post. Travis, you mentioned earlier the changing nature uh, of the music industry in general, and I wanted to talk to you about the newer artists, the more contemporary writers. What are they doing? They don't have big back catalogues like this. Are there any of those who are getting into this uh, space of selling their their creativity while they're still producing? There are a few. Um, John Legend uh, has cashed in. Uh, Ryan Tedder from One Republic, who also produces and writes um, many songs, he also has sold some of his catalog, which is very interesting because they are selling what they have now, but they're going to continue to create, which is not to say that the other artists we've mentioned are not going Mm -hmm. to continue to create. But obviously, John Legend, Ryan Tedder have probably a longer career ahead of them. So in a way, they seem to be taking advantage of this moment, um, cashing in on this bubble while also starting, I guess, a second leg of their career while they will retain that music. Um, But I think the most interesting person is probably Taylor Swift, because Taylor Swift entered a contract when she was very young. And it was a a fairly normal contract for an artist of of her age and her stature, where, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the record label owned her recordings and she owned the compositions, the writing. She, at some point, wanted to buy her recordings. She wanted to own complete control of her music and was denied. Mm-hmm. And was told, no, you, know, you, you can't buy this. Uh, so she waited until a, a contract uh, clause expired. There's generally a, a clause in a contract, a recording contract, saying you can't re-record your own music after you know, generally 10 or so years. I think for her it was 10 years. And she said, okay, well, if I can't buy my recordings, I'll make a second set of them. So and she started to recreate the original. Absolutely. Yeah. She's uh, re-recording her first, uh, I believe, five albums, so that creates a second set of masters. So now, going back to the commercial idea, if Toyota comes in and says, mm-hmm. I want to buy Romeo and Juliet by Taylor Swift for this commercial, they can either go to her Big Red, her old label. Uh, I'm sorry, she's not Big Red anymore. But she can go, they can go to her old label. Scooter or buy the new, the new production that she's recreated. Yeah. Um, exactly. Travis, I want to go back to where we started on this one. And if I don't, I think my producer might have a heart attack. He's a big Billy Joel fan. Um, And so we wanted to get your views on what's going on there. How is a figure arrived at? Is it just what the market will pay or is there a formula? Really, I suppose what I'm asking is, 
Why would Billy Joel's catalogue be worth twice the value of Bruce Springsteen? I think it's a mixture of things. I think, um, for one, the market will dictate, you know, a certain number. And then I think it's a negotiation. I think that depending on who is planning on buying Billy Joel's catalog, if they see a future of using these songs, I I think it's important to remember, once someone owns this, Mm -hmm. it it lasts at least 70 years, um, most likely 140 years. So, once someone has access to these catalogs, and Billy Joel has so many hits, so many familiar songs that have been around for decades and will likely continue to be around, uh, which is a very important thing And when you're buying a catalog. What is the longevity of this? How long can we use this in movies, TVs, commercials, Peloton, etc.? Um, I, I think someone might reach the conclusion that it's truly worth that much and if billy joel's holding out um i'm sure they would have liked to get it for the same price if not less than bruce springsteen's but if he's holding out and says a billion dollars and someone says that seems like a worthwhile investment over the next hundred years um it's it's a little less surprising than it sounds on on its face Hmm. um might be financially rewarding but emotionally destructive for artists like him he's got a very pristine body of work it isn't underused it's not overused do you think that um there will be a, a deal done do you think that um ultimately he will sell his back catalog it's you know it's so hard to speculate but he did raise that number and that number is being being talked about so it, it's hard to imagine um, saying this as someone who does not have a billion dollars, mm. that if someone were to come to you and and offer that that sort of money in this moment where again this this moment that will likely pass and his music will never be valued at that that same height again, it's hard to imagine passing on a deal like that. And when you look at everyone else who has sold, it it is his contemporaries, it is his peers. There are not very many artists uh, around his age and around his sort of status that have held out and not sold. So, you know, I can't speculate, but my my gut says he probably will. Well, I suppose the other side of it is that for the longest time, this is an industry that's notorious for not rewarding creative talent. At least the 1% seems Uh, to be getting some level of payback for their creativity. But uh, we'll have to leave it there for now, Travis. Uh, That's Travis M. Andrews from The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been great. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. We hope that you enjoyed today's topics. And if you have something that you'd like us to look at, please get in touch with us on Twitter at StockNT or email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. Many thanks to all my guests today and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardozo on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day.